Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Maria Geisinger. Uh, she's a professor and a director of the Advanced Education Program in Periodontology. Uh, she's part of the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And we're going to talk about uh, periodontal issues and diabetes, which I think will be very interesting. So, Maria, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your work. So, you know, one of the things that I work on is not just diabetes, but periodontal disease and how it relates to overall wellness. So periodontal disease is sort of a a unique disease in that it has an infectious component. It's initiated by the presence of bacteria in the mouth and particularly bacteria inside the sulcus underneath the gum line. And that bacteria causes host response. And the host response, the inflammatory response is actually what causes the destruction of the supporting tissues around the teeth, the gum, the bone, the periodontal ligament. And the variation we see in disease severity is usually related to overall systemic inflammatory burden, as well as um, genetic variation and medications, other factors. So when we think about what modifies the process of periodontal disease destruction, the, the pathophysiology of how the underlying tissues um, around the teeth are destroyed in the presence of these bacteria, we have to look at um, the underlying systemic disease that many of our patients have that predispose them to um, the initiation or a more severe destruction of those tissues. And diabetes is a great example because there is evidence to suggest, there are some data to suggest that not only does the inflammatory burden from the hyperglycemia associated with diabetes affect the destruction of periodontal tissues, but that the inflammation produced from periodontal tissue destruction can affect glycemic control. Let's go over a few terms here. So you're talking (laughs) about disease and destruction, which sounds pretty bad. For people that don't know, like what is a periodontologist do and what is periodontal disease? Just from a right. perspective. It's a great question. A wonderful place to start. So a periodontist is a dentist um, who, after dental school, goes to three more years of residency and specializes in the supporting structures around the teeth. So everything that supports the teeth, not the teeth themselves. So perio around dont, right, the tooth. Those supporting structures include the jawbone, the alveolar bone proper, the gingival tissue, and the periodontal ligament, which is a suspensory ligament, essentially a shock absorber that joins the tooth to the bone. And it's a really unique place in your body because it's the only place in your body where you have hard tissue coming through a skin-like tissue surface. So it would be like you had an IV 
And if you have an IV and you go to the hospital, the protocol is they move it every 48 hours because that tissue will get infected. So quick question, uh, where, where is the periodontal ligament? Is it like in the center of the tooth coming up from the, the, the bone through the middle of the tooth? No, or where does it, it lie? It attaches the root of the tooth to the surrounding bony socket. Huh. Interesting. So when you bite down and you chew stuff, are you saying it, it acts like a cushion mm-hmm. or a spring? Yeah. So there's there's a tiny, teeny bit of movement that occurs that allows for the teeth to be more resistant to biting forces, occlusal forces is what we call them. Oh, interesting. When you are chewing, I would think the contraction and release of the periodontal ligaments probably sends a signal to the rest of your body, like this coordinated contracting and releasing. Uh, I don't know, just for some reason, it just occurred to me. Yeah, you you have blood vessels and nerve endings inside that periodontal ligament. And generally, you don't have pain associated with that, but there is something we call proprioception, which is the um, sensation of a part of your body in space. It's one of the things that they think make athletes, elite, elite athletes, that they can detect millimeter differences in where their arms or their fingers are in space. And you have nerve endings that allow you proprioception. So you can actually control how hard you're biting in that periodontal ligament space. Mm, okay. So it's all right. So you, you look at all these surrounding structures um, and then continue on. So what happens in periodontal disease? Like what happens in the beginning and then in later stages? So the thing I always tell patients is your mama was right. Your mouth is dirty. You have um, over 700 species of bacteria in your mouth. Um, And we all know that some of those bacteria um, use sugar as energy and make acid and that causes tooth decay. But some of those bacteria also that are present, particularly at or just below the gum line, make toxins, virulence factors that are toxic to your gums and bone. And when those toxins um, signal to the host tissues, your surrounding tissues, that they are present, when your body senses that they are present, your body is really, really smart and it wants to get away from those tissues and, or those toxins, excuse me. So the tissues start to essentially unzip from the tooth root. Your body starts to resorb the tissues away from the tooth root and away from those bacterial toxins that are underneath the gum line. And that's why people get attachment loss, gum and bone loss, which is character characteristic of periodontal disease. And if it goes untreated, your teeth will get loose and exfoliate. They will fall out, um, which is the surefire cure for periodontal disease um, is to have no teeth, but it's not a real desirable outcome. So <laughs> it's the reason why I have a job. The space between the gum and the tooth, bacteria can get in there and get trapped and I've, I've seen like, you know, myself and other people like swollen gums and mm-hmm. you know, when you floss or brush, they bleed sometimes. Yep. And I guess that's like a micro environment for bacteria where like anaerobic ones can thrive or. Yeah. So in particular, it's not just individual bacteria. It's a consortium of bacteria that create a protected biofilm where they're not just right floating around in fluid, but they have essentially an environment where they're they create extracellular substance and some bacteria protect the other bacteria and the anaerobic bacteria, the bacteria that don't use oxygen that are deep within that biofilm tend to be the worst actors for periodontal disease and for producing those initial toxins. 
But there's great variation in how patients react to the same quantity and quality of biofilm. So, you know, I'll have patients who come in and say, I don't understand why I have this severe gum disease and, you know, my spouse or my sister who doesn't know which end of the toothbrush goes in their mouth, the fuzzy end or the other end, why they don't have um, gum disease. And it's because everybody has a different sensitivity to the amount of bacterial toxins that trigger that gum and bone loss. And there's a lot of things that factor into that. Things that increase systemic inflammation or change the blood flow, like smoking, can increase the likelihood of gum and bone loss and the severity of gum and bone loss. And then other things that rev up your body's overall inflammatory burden, like diabetes and and lots of other systemic diseases can also affect the pattern um, and severity of bone loss that we see. So again, someone with periodontal disease, at first, what, they'll have like swollen gums and when they um, floss or brush, they may bleed excessively. And then what, what will they notice? Will they notice that they have like more bad breath or that their so jaw aches or what? Generally, what, what, generally the what first sign of gum disease is going to be bleeding gums. And patients will say, well, my gums only bleed when I floss. But the truth of the matter is healthy tissue should not bleed when you strike it. And so if your gums only bleed when you floss, you definitely have some form of periodontal disease, whether it's gingivitis, so the inflammation is just located in the gum tissue, just in the gingiva, or periodontitis, you would need um, a full comprehensive periodontal exam with your dentist to find out. But it's not normal. Bleeding gums are not normal. And the solution, if it's gingivitis, it's reversible. And so the solution is um, better oral hygiene. And, you know, the example I'll tell patients is, you know, if you on January 1st decide my New Year's resolution is I'm going to go to the gym every day and you go the first time and you haven't been in a while, you're going to be sore. And there are two solutions for not being sore. One is to stop going and eventually you won't be sore. Or one is to keep going and eventually you won't be sore. And one of those is better than the other for you. One of them leads to better health outcomes. And so flossing, which is unpopular, only 4% of Americans report that they do it every day, is really the equivalent of going to the gym, right? So if if your gum tissues bleed when you floss and you've been diagnosed with gingivitis, so that's inflammation just of the gingiva, not of the periodontium, no bone loss, but inflammation of the gingiva. To prevent it from moving to periodontitis, the solution is seeing your dentist regularly and doing good oral hygiene, which includes interdental cleaning, usually using floss or some other interdental cleaning device. If you have had bone loss, periodontitis, so the inflammation includes not just the gingival tissue, but the underlying structures as well, then you need further treatment with your dentist or periodontist. And that may include non-surgical deep periodontal cleaning or um, surgical therapy to repair those defects. All right. So when I talk about the gum, the gums, that's the gingiva? That's the gingiva. Yeah. Dentists call that the gingiva. It sounds fancier, doesn't it? Sounds like gingerbread, yeah. Okay, so then when you get periodontal disease, you you won't even really know. The dentist has to look and see if there's bone loss, right? Or will you notice, like will you get long in the tooth or will you notice something? So the earliest stages of periodontitis, generally you won't notice. From the outside, without dentists taking measurements and taking radiographs, 
it's almost indistinguishable from gingivitis because it the bone loss is occurring underneath the gum tissue. Now, if it progresses, you may have abscesses, you may have increased mobility, you may have spaces that open up between your teeth because they start to flare because they've lost that foundational support. So in the later stages, yes, pain, mobility, noticing that your teeth may appear longer, noticing that the position of the teeth have changed may be things that patients notice, but that's not when we want to diagnose disease. We want to diagnose it early because it's much easier to treat. And if our goal is retaining teeth, then starting with the diagnosis early is critically important. What's happening with the bacteria? I mean, if you're the gingiver kind of coming away from the, the teeth, um, that microenvironment might change from anaerobic to aerobic, or does it stay anaerobic? It just shrinks. And is that the, like a defense mechanism to try to minimize the area that the bacteria have? So, so it's a great question. As the gum tissue pulls away from the tooth, it creates a deeper and a deeper groove beti- between the gum tissue and the tooth. We call that a periodontal pocket. And that's actually what your dentist will measure to determine your periodontal diagnosis. Um, but the deeper that pocket gets, the bacteria will start to crawl down the tooth root surface, start to move apically further down along the root to extend that biofilm. The biofilm will kind of expand to fill all the space that it has. And that's why the disease progresses, right? So the gum tissue unzips, it creates this deeper periodontal pocket, and that becomes a protected niche. So if you brush your teeth, the bristles of your toothbrush get underneath the gum line about a millimeter. If you floss, the floss can go underneath the gum line about a millimeter and a half which means that if that periodontal pocket is deeper than that, your home care, the brushing and flossing that you're doing at home is not removing the bacteria from deep within that pocket. And over time, that bacteria can actually combine with fluid in your mouth, with minerals from fluid in your mouth and and mineralize and become hard accretions, something we call calculus, but a lot of times in layman's terms, people call it tartar on the the root surface underneath the gum line. So now you have this rough sort of barnacle-y substance that's underneath the gum line that is even more adherent for that bacterial plaque to kind of grow on and in and a lot more difficult to be removed, needs to be removed generally professionally by a dentist or dental hygienist. Yeah, I noticed like in the bottom of my teeth, I'll get uh, that calcified stuff. So I can see that might actually open up a tiny bit more space in between the gum and the tooth to allow bacteria to get in there. But you're saying it's also what, like a nucleation site for bacteria where they can grow from there? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so what you can see is what we call supragingival calculus, so above the gum line. And that generally mineralizes from uh, minerals in your saliva. But you also have fluid that flows out of the groove, the, the periodontal sulcus, underneath the gum line that can mineralize plaque bacteria that sticks on the root surface. That's called subgingival calculus, and that you wouldn't be able to see. And it generally has a darker color because it has blood pigment mixed in with it. And that serves, it's plaque retentive, so it serves to hold on to plaque. And it's generally very porous. 
So there are actually kind of nooks and crannies where the plaque can live protected on and in the subgingival calculus. I went to the dentist recently and they had like you know, this metal pick and they go one, three, three, two, three, 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 two. You know, they count yep. against the pocket depth. You yep. know? And I was joking, what if they found like a, a 22 and they go, oh God, no, you know, but yeah, your that, that's what I experienced. That long. Generally that, that periodontal probe, which is essentially a little teeny tiny metal ruler, the longest one we we generally use outside of research is 15 millimeters long. It's probably unlikely to see a number over over 10 on a regular basis. But I always tell my patients, you can play the home game. Three and under are the numbers that we like. Four and up, we get nervous about. So if you're at the That's dentist it. and they're calling out those numbers, you play the home game, count the numbers that are four and up. And those are the ones we got to worry about. So you said that some people will get like a, a deep cleaning. What will they do? How do they get into the gum to get the, the sub-gingival calculus out? First, they got to get you numb. So I would get you numb um, because it's not comfortable, shockingly enough. You, you don't want a white knuckle having, having that deep cleaning done. And then we have specialized instruments that are designed to be narrower and use in some of those deeper periodontal pockets. And so you would go in once the patient was numb and clean underneath the gum line to try to remove the plaque and the calculus that is deep underneath the inside those periodontal pockets. So they'll pull the gum away or how do they get down there? In a periodontal pocket, just like with that, that periodontal probe, there is space for these narrower instruments to get down in there. And they have a, a blunt side and a sharp side. The sharp side goes against the tooth root and you use it against the tooth and move it from the base of the pocket up to scrape all that, that hardened plaque and tartar out of the periodontal pocket. And there are also other instruments that you can use. There's some that vibrate at an ultrasonic frequency and have water for lavage that kind of washes everything out, that kind of thing. So what happens when someone gets a cleaning like this done? Like how long will it last and how protective is it? So if you have scaling and replaning, which is what we call a deep periodontal cleaning, the next thing that we would do is schedule an appointment about a month after that to take those measurements with the teeny tiny ruler again. And that's because we need to see how well you've healed up after that deep periodontal cleaning. And how definitive that treatment is really depends upon how severe the disease is prior to the cleaning. Um, and what I mean by that is we talked about those numbers. If those numbers were four and five, a lot of times the definitive treatment is that deep periodontal cleaning. If you had heavy plaque and calculus, so lots of etiology where we know why the inflammation is present and why those those deep pockets are present. If we can clean that off, hopefully the, the gum tissue will heal up more easily. So if you have deeper pockets or less, inf less etiology present, the likelihood that the deep periodontal cleaning is the definitive treatment, that you wouldn't need surgical treatment to repair the defects that were present is less. So we would do a, a re-evaluation, that same exam with the 
323 little tiny metal ruler and then see how well you healed up. Kind of like if you got put on a new medication for high blood pressure, they wouldn't say, okay, see you in a year. Hope this works. They would see you back and check your blood pressure. Maybe have you record your blood pressure over time to see if that medication was sufficient or if you needed additional treatment. So how long can these uh, treatments last or like how much of an impact if someone's not too far along and they get this cleaning like once a year? Is it is it very protective or only a little bit? So once you have that deep periodontal cleaning, if when they do the reevaluation that you now are in a healthy environment where you've had some attachment loss, something that we would call health in a reduced periodontium. Um, you've had some attachment loss, but you have shallower pockets and you're doing a good job with oral hygiene. Now we would see you for regular maintenance cleanings um, on a regular basis and take that same exam at least once a year to try to catch a little problem before it becomes a big problem. We talked about susceptibility. So one of the things that we know about patients who've had periodontitis is they are susceptible, right? Because there's a certain percentage of patients that no matter how much plaque and calculus they build up, they never get periodontitis. That's about 10% of the population. There's about another 10% of the population that, you know, you would look at them and they are so clean and everything looks great and they still have attachment loss. And then most of us are in the 80% in the middle where our disease is related to the etiologic factors, whether they be systemic etiologic factors or local etiologic factors, right? The plaque and calculus or, or other diseases or conditions like smoking, the rest of us are somewhere in the middle. But from our standpoint, if patients have proven themselves susceptible, if they have lost attachment, we know that in the future, they are more likely to lose attachment. It has to do with the type of repair that occurs after periodontal treatment, but also understanding that those sites and those individuals have the genetic predisposition and the systemic conditions in the right environment to lose attachment. So generally patients who've had periodontitis and have a diagnosis of periodontitis have to be seen a little bit more often um, for preventative care than patients who have not had attachment loss. I was going to say, what would be a, a, a protocol for someone that's had periodontal disease? Like every three months cleaning or every Generally, month? Generally, the starting point is every three months. And that has to do with how long it takes for that biofilm to build up to be a, a bad biofilm, a dysbiotic biofilm. So generally about three months and depending on the particular risk factors and susceptibility and the disease progression, some patients we might see more often than that. And some patients we might see less often than that, but the default is usually about three months. And what, what access do um, the bacteria in your mouth have to your bloodstream? So if you have gingival inflammation, if you have bleeding, when you brush or floss, every time you eat, every time you brush or floss, every time your dentist does a cleaning, if you had a tooth extracted, you have a transient systemic bacteremia, meaning that you have bacteria in your bloodstream that comes from your mouth due to those things. So if blood's coming out, bacteria can get in. And then what was the consequence of bacteria getting into your bloodstream? if it's not obvious? Well, you know, it, it really depends. There are various consequences. In most cases, your body clears the bacteria and nothing 
significant happens. But those bacteria, just like they have toxins that are deleterious to the tissues in your mouth, those same toxins are present and require an immune response when they're present in your bloodstream. The more bacteria that are present, the more of a response your body needs. So there has been um, associations of changes in blood flow patterns, endothelial dysfunction related to transient bacteremias from oral sources, uh, elevated markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein. And, you know, in some patients who may be predisposed to it, who've had previous endocarditis or previous infections of total joint, there is a possibility that those bacteria attach to areas in the body that may be susceptible to that and heart valves that have been replaced, total joints that have been replaced and cause problems there. And so some patients need to pre-medicate when they go to the dentist because of that. But if they're not managing their oral hygiene correctly, you know, they may be getting a bacteremia every time they brush their teeth. So what about people that have diabetes? Does it accelerate all these problems or just aggravate them a lot? Like, what do you see? So it's generally not the bacteremias that we believe cause this. It's the inflammatory burden. Certain chronic conditions, um, diabetes being one of them, and in particular, Diabetes with suboptimal sugar control, glycemic control, results in higher levels of inflammation. So that sustained sugar in your bloodstream, um, it binds irreversibly to proteins throughout your body. Collagen, it binds to hemoglobin in your blood, which is that number that they measure, that hemoglobin A1C number. And those things are called advanced glycation end products. And you have receptors for all of those AGEs all over your body, receptors for the advanced glycation end products. And when the AGEs bind to the RAGEs, the RAGE, that results in an uh, inflammatory cascade. So patients who have moderately or poorly controlled diabetes tend to have higher levels of inflammatory markers. This could be the C-reactive protein, which is often measured, but also other inflammatory cytokines. And patients who have diabetes also have um, higher levels of systemic inflammation. Take those two things together. And what we see is in patients who have in particular type 2 diabetes, which is related to insulin resistance, those patients tend to have higher rates of periodontitis and more severe periodontal destruction than patients without diabetes or well-controlled diabetics. So we know that, you know, there are essentially set complications for diabetes mellitus, you know, microvascular, macrovascular, retinopathy, renal disease, you know, you can go through the whole list, wound healing, but in most cases, periodontitis can be considered the sixth complication of diabetes mellitus. And the results seem to be bidirectional, that patients with periodontitis also have a harder time controlling their sugar because of that common inflammatory burden. Have there been clinical trials where, uh, you know, a set of people that have diabetes have gone 
on a pretty aggressive schedule for cleaning to see, uh, you know, what the results were in the, yeah, uh, so, in the biomarker. So there, have been, there have been a series of trials and overall a recent meta-analysis demonstrated, so meta-analysis kind of combines all the results of all the trials, right? Showed that treatment with the deep periodontal cleaning and the use of antibiotics resulted in the reduction in A1C of about 0.75%, which um, would mean moving from an 8 to a 7.25 or a 7.5 to a 6.75. That's also the exact, well, not the exact, but 0.7 is the threshold for FDA approval for a diabetic medication. So certainly a patient who is newly diagnosed with diabetes, one of the first referrals that they should get is to go see their dentist, have this examination, and and see if not only maybe their diabetes is affecting their oral health, um, and they have um, the opportunity to intervene and save teeth, but emerging data suggest that if we're able to control the oral systemic inflammation, the the systemic inflammation associated with the oral disease, that we may improve diabetic outcomes as well, which is kind of an exciting um, finding. Now, there are some caveats there. Uh, There are other diseases that can swap the inflammatory burden that we see from periodontitis. So there there are many, many variables when you're talking about individual patients, But as a a screening opportunity, screening dental patients for signs and symptoms of diabetes, and then screening newly diagnosed diabetic and or pre-diabetic patients for their oral health and hygiene, I think is a critical step to make sure that we're we're managing patients adequately. Yeah, if you do a lot of cleanings and then A1C goes down like 0.75 and then you also take a medication, it goes down, let's say another 0.7, if it if it's linear like that, that would be very significant, you know, like a 1.4% reduction. Yeah. And, and again, we are not sure that it works that way. We are not sure that it that right. difference would be additive because most of the inclusion exclusion criteria in those studies involved patients who had not had a change in medication and were, had been diagnosed for at least three months. But I think this is exciting. And also when we think about personalized care, right? Looking at each individual patient and their, their overall risk factors, you know, targeting certain patients with more intensive oral hygiene um, and more intensive oral care could end up being a cost saver on the back end. So if we look at data that were evaluated from a large insurance database, the saving for patients with diabetes who received dental care over a one-year period was over $2,500, the, the saving in their expenditure for, for medicine. Similarly, you know, the UK has a nationalized health service that includes dentistry, and they found that if, if they're able to have patients be compliant with their periodontal treatment, both their active therapy, their deep periodontal cleaning and their surgery, and their maintenance therapy long-term, um, over their lifetime, they save about $30,000 or $22,000 thousand pounds, which, you know, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at when you think about the prevalence of some of these chronic systemic diseases in our society. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. What else do you think is going to be gleaned 
from looking at periodontal health and in terms of diabetes? Like what left to be explored there? I think looking at individual markers for disease, meaning if you look at diabetes type two, we know that it's extremely heritable. It's about 50% heritable. There are, there are significant familial risk factors for developing diabetes type two. And periodontal disease is fairly similar. There's about a 50% heritability. Those data all come out of the Minnesota twin studies. So looking at what are some of the overlap in the overall transcriptome, um, and when I say transcriptome, I don't, I don't just mean genome. I mean, you know, all of the genetic material that's transcribed in your body. So gut microbiome, all of the microRNAs that serve as um, switches to turn on and off genes, all of the ways that genes are methylated or carboxylated epigenetic changes at local sites that could potentially have commonalities between some of these chronic inflammatory diseases. And that includes diabetes and periodontitis, where we see, okay, if we can turn off this switch, if we can downregulate this microRNA, if we can change the gut flora, in a certain way, how does that affect the overall inflammatory burden in the body and thus those two diseases? Because I think that gives us a lot of insight into sort of the individualized um, responses to the same risk factors, the same stimuli in different patients. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Well, I'm on ResearchGate, and I would um, highly recommend people go visit the American Academy of Periodontology website, which is perio.org, as well as the National Institutes of Cranio and Dental Research, Craniofacial and Dental Research, NIDCR, and their uh, information on periodontal disease and diabetes. Very good. Well, Maria, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.